0: This morning is September 8th. It is Sunday morning. Our message this morning is cut the mustard. Y'all ever heard that English expression? Somebody can't cut the mustard? What's that usually
1: mean?
0: Yeah, it means they can't hack it. I have no idea where it comes from. I spent more time in the Word this morning than trying to develop some silly analogy. But in the kingdom of God, those of us that have pledged our lives to it, there are those that cut the mustard and those that don't. And it's determined by what they do. And what you do is determined by what you hold most dearly and closely to your heart. So I have been working to preach the message of the kingdom to you. When Jesus went out and preached, I showed you last week, He preached about the kingdom of God being at hand. It being right there in their lives, in their face, with their chance to, uh, to participate in it. Well, while I was at this funeral this week of a young girl, by the way, this is her picture, Brooke Allison. How old was Brooke when she died? Four? Five? Five, and she spent the last couple years of her life battling leukemia. There were some quotes from Brooke that just moved my heart. You know, as a parent, you're sitting in a funeral of a child looking at a four-foot pink casket, and all you can really see is your children in that. And... While there was a mixture of grief and joy in the room, what I could not get beyond was this little girl had hold of the kingdom message. And something as small as a mustard seed, her little three-and-a-half-foot, four-foot body, was touching thousands of people there. You want to hear a couple of quotes from Brooke's life? She was so sweet. She said, I'm going to love you up, big time. (laughs) That's, That's pretty awesome, huh? Uh... What we need is big love. That's what she said. I'm going to love you up to the sky. This is a little girl dying of cancer, and those were the kind of things she's telling people. Unless she sounds too, uh, too saintly. You know, sometimes when people have had a funeral, you forget they were human beings just like you. She also said things like, "Mom, you're my favorite woodpecker." <laughs> you know what on earth? You know, but I can hear my son Gabriel saying that very same thing. Isn't that amazing? Well, one of the things that touched me while we were there was I kept thinking as I thought about my children, I started to think about these two parents there. And I want to tell you these are amazing parents. Jessica and Chaney uh, had a supernatural glow about them. When we say supernatural, what we mean is something beyond man's nor- ordinary, normal abilities. Now, here's what is interesting, and please hear me enough not to get mad at me about what I'm saying. What they had was supernatural, but it should be certainly, absolutely expected of a Christian because we are expected to operate in the supernatural. You do not expect to see real Christians grieving like they have no hope. What you expect to see is a joyful confidence that what we can't see, we are certain of, is true. And I saw that all over them. A business associate this week, I told why I had not returned his email more promptly. And he responded with, Eric, I'm so sorry. What a horrible, horrible event. Those things shake my faith." I understood what he, what he meant. That's the normal response. I struggled with how to respond to his email because this man is genuine. Uh... You know, where he is with his walk is is another issue, but he is a genuine human being and he was heartfelt when he said that. And that's a normal response, isn't it? I realized I had a brochure from the funeral. (laughs) Jessica and Cheney answered that man's question. And I know this is not really our message this morning about cutting the mustard, but I want you to understand there's a place where the kingdom of God becomes real in our lives. And that's the place we're supposed to dwell. Listen to what they wrote. Okay, this is Jessica. I believe, writing, but she writes from the perspective of her and Cheney, the parents of Brooke Allison. I was thinking about something tonight, and I wanted to share it with you. I hope it's okay that I share just a little bit of my heart. I try not to get off tangents very often, but this is so stirring within me. Cheney and I have had people say things to us like, How do you do this? You amaze me. You wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be able to do what you do. We always respond the same way. It is God. We can't do anything without Him. Tonight I thought, what is it exactly? I mean, I know it's God, but what is it about God that gives us strength and assurance? Do you know? I came up with a lot of answers, like God is love and joy, God's peace and His grace and His presence and His people and all the prayers, etc., etc. When I searched a little harder, I realized that our strength comes from deep within our spirit a spirit that is one with Him, united with Him in an intimate way. I want you to remember, the woman writing this is about to bury her five-year-old daughter, her very heart, you know. You ever love something? I mean, there's not very many loves in the world like a mother loves her daughter. Yeah, I I was reading this in the coffee shop for the first time this morning, and people sitting on my left and right are wondering why I'm crying, you know, because I'm usually loud and obnoxious. It's because something about this pulls me in. I can pull, pull out all my reserves of peace and strength and determination in the natural and still come up bankrupt, weary, burdened, and anxious. But there's a huge difference when I pull from my spirit. My spirit deeply loves God and trusts Him. And out of this relationship flows all kinds of good things like joy and laughter and peace and strength. This love always protects and trust and hopes and perseveres. Jesus endured the cross. Stephen endured stoning. Paul endured beatings, imprisonment and shipwrecks. How? It's very simple. It was their steadfast love for the Father. So even though we have looked at death day in and day out for two years now, and even though every doctor in this hospital is giving us a very hopeless message, and even though Cheney and I have had to watch doctors and nurses scramble to revive our precious girl over and over And even though we have watched Taylor and our family cry painful tears, and even though Cheney and I have wept unceasingly at times, and our hearts hurt with unimaginable pain, our spirits still cry, We love you, Abba Father. Friends, that's Christianity. I did not even read the second half of the letter. That is real Christianity. Some of you had a hard time, I know. You did well with the teaching. Forgive me, you should read this letter later. By the way, that is my response to the business. I'll scan this letter today and send it. I can't put it any better than they did. The testimony of the parents who are enduring the trial is that they love the Father and they experience unimaginable pain and yet still from their spirit comes joy and laughter. That's Christianity, saints. That's an awesome thing. I know some of you had a hard time with my teaching that we don't grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. It sounded almost as if I was being callous at times. It's not callous, saints. It's not allowing your emotions to trick you into believing something that is not real. What is not real is when a Christian dies, it is not the end. The Bible does not even call it death. It calls it sleep. It's a very temporary situation. In fact, Brooke is very much alive right now and God is the God of the living. In fact, you might say she's more alive. Remember that old worldly song, I Feel So Alive? Now, of course y'all don't remember any of that. Y'all wouldn't listen to those kind of bands, right? She really is alive. Isn't that amazing? Awesome. That's where the rubber meets the road. That kind of faith cuts the mustard. Okay? So we're going to pick up this morning in Daniel... Actually, let's do this. Let's pick up in Psalm 92. Is that okay? Turn to the middle of your Bible. You'll find Psalms. Y'all know how this church is. People are going to walk in and out that door. For whatever reason, we are church of the latecomers They show up as, as they please despite my very best efforts. Do your very best to follow this train of thought. Last week, we taught about two different kingdoms, you have citizenship in this world system, but you also have citizenship in a heavenly kingdom that is being established on the earth. The gospel that Jesus taught was the gospel that the kingdom of God is coming upon the earth now, even in their very presence. The gospel that John the Baptist announced was that gospel. The gospel that the apostles preached was that gospel. Not that we would leave, go live in some other place on some other planet called heaven, but that heaven's kingdom, the dominion or rule of God, was being set up on earth. Nick, would you write something for me on the board? Across the top, write king's dominion. Every time you hear the word kingdom of heaven, I want you to think about the king who is in heaven whose dominion stretches down to the earth. Okay, yeah, write it big across the top. Y'all in Psalm 92? It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High. Come on now, isn't that true, Matthew? Yeah. Didn't y'all have fun this morning? Yeah. What a simple song. We lift your name up, we lift your up. But isn't it fun? Yeah. Something in your spirit cries out that it's true. You get excited about it. We even act like silly people. We dance for a king we can't see. We laugh and clap and have a good time. And some would say, only fools would act like that. But that would make you wonder who the fools are, wouldn't it? Yeah, the observer or the participant. To proclaim your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night, to the music of the ten string lyre and the melody of the harp. For you make me glad by your deeds, O Lord. I sing for joy at the works of your hands. You know, those are familiar words that we've heard Christian singers, you know, sell albums all over the world with those words. In times of trouble, the only thing that you can cling to that is good, that makes joy come out of your spirit are the works of God's hands and His deeds. Let's not get focused on the enemy. Let's not get focused on death. Death is an enemy. It's the very last one to be put down. When you see death, you know what the Christian should be trained to do? Go, wow. One day, mortality will be swallowed up by what is immortal. People meant well, and I understand that, and I, I'm so thankful for the spirit that was in that funeral. But they misquoted Paul, and they misquoted him continuously. And it's because they didn't understand something. They said that, oh, this is the sting of death. This, what we're feeling now, is the sting of death. That is not what Paul said. Paul said, where, O oh death, is your sting? Paul had learned to look into the eye of the enemy and deny that it had any hold on him. Now, I'm not talking about not grieving. Okay, I'm talking about not grieving like men who have no hope. Paul looked right into the face of the enemy and laughed. He said, Where, O oh death, is your sting? Where is your victory? You know? At my funeral, I want you to know now, those of you that survive me, I want someone to sing, Ain't No Grave Going to Hold This Body Down. Because that is the cry of my heart. That is the. It, now I know it's kind of a cheesy old song. Feel free to get Matthew to dress it up. That's okay. But those words, man, that's the truth. You know? Lots of people said things like, We will go to join Brookie. You know, I want to stand on a pew and yell. Brookie will come to join us. On the earth, we will see her again in a glorified body in the kingdom of God. If that's your hope, then you can walk in the kingdom now by its principles under the dominion of the king now. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Introduction, huh? I can't help it. It's flowing from me. Go ahead and skip down to verse 12. Not because the rest is not good. It is fantastic. But as usual, I'm going to run out of time as we preach today. Verse 12, the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of their God. They will still bear fruit in their old age. They will stay fresh and green. To an agricultural people as we begin to talk about living in the king's dominion in the household of God. Come on, teenagers, did you never, those of us who were once teenagers, everybody in the room, did your parents never look at you and say, as long as you are in my house, Adam, you will live by my rules. Did you never hear that? Well, as long as we're going to live in God's house, we're going to live by His dominion, His rules. And what does it do? What did this say? It says, oh, it causes us to grow. It causes us to flourish. It causes us to bear fruit, even in our old age. The Bible says He'll keep you alive even in a famine. You know why? You may be living in a world that is in famine, but the truth is you're living within the kingdom of God in your own life. And He never runs out of provision for you. Isn't that awesome? I wanted to point that out in Psalm. Micah 2.12 teaches about something. I talked about it last week. You can turn there if you want. If not, uh, you know, I rarely lie when I preach, so you can trust me. <laughs> Spoke of a time period where God would send someone who would break open the way. Then following the one who broke open the way would come a king who would lead the people out at their head through the hole that was broke open. That's Micah 2.12 and 13, paraphrased in the King Eric. Now, why am I telling you about that? Because last week what we found out is John the Baptist came with a message, and his message was the kingdom... God is near. Another way to say that is the king's dominion is near. It's right at your hand. It's about to envelop you. It will overcome you if you let it. He broke open the way where there was no way. Where people didn't know how to walk in the king's dominion, didn't know how to live it, all of a sudden a pinhole of light appeared. And then a king named Jesus walked it perfectly. Showed us how to live in the king's dominion constantly, in every situation, to the extent that He said things like, I only say what my Father in heaven says. You, I only do what I see Him doing. By the way, the prince of this world is coming. In other words, the guy who's running this kingdom is coming. But he has no hold on me. The world will learn that I love the Father and do exactly what is intended. commanded. Jesus was the King at the head of the people, even the Lord Himself showing us the right way to walk in this kingdom while on the earth. Matthew 11:12 says that from the time of the prophets until now, John the Baptist, the kingdom of heaven has been breaking forth. In other words, Luke 16:16 16, 16 says this as well, if you want to write that down, those of you that are taking notes. In other words, there's a time period in history where a message was proclaimed. I'm going to go back and show you this message in Daniel. That there would be kingdoms that would rule the earth. We would have this kingdom, then this kingdom, then this kingdom, and then would come the kingdom of God. There were four kingdoms that would rule the earth and then the kingdom of God would come. Well, Matthew 11:12 12 says, from John the Baptist day till now, the kingdom is breaking forth and forceful men lay hold of it. Luke 16 16 takes a little different approach to the same Scripture. It says the kingdom of of God has been breaking forth and the forceful force their way into it. All of that is speaking one message to you. There is a king's dominion on the earth. The king of heaven is establishing his colony on earth, if you will. And it takes forceful men and women to push their way into it. And last week we talked an awful lot about what it meant to be forceful in that way. We're not talking about militant. We're talking about forceful enough to lay aside your own will, to be sweating by a rock as if it were drops of blood, being pressed as if in an olive press, and say, not my will, but your will be done, Father. That is a forceful man. And Jesus showed us how to do that in every situation. Jessica and Chaney at this funeral were incredibly forceful people. And you say, well, what a, what a paradox, what a contradiction. They were full of peace and love and tears. What well, do you mean forceful? We don't wage war like the world does. Forceful to us is not the same as forceful to them. What is forceful to a Christian? Unyielding, powerful, big love. that will look at somebody that may not deserve it and say, come here, I'm going to love you up big time and mean it in the holiest of senses. You know, that is an awesome thing. And when I began to look at this little girl's casket, a Scripture hit me that we will get to later. And I'm giving away the title to my message because I love you and I can't bear to hold you in suspense. I looked at that casket and I said, man, that's a little. There's a little person inside. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that is the smallest of seeds and yet it becomes the biggest of the garden plants so that even the birds can take refuge in its branches. And I thought that little girl was little. And yet the message of the king's dominion was inside of her. Her daddy God was inside of her to the extent that it touched thousands of people who were at the funeral. And I thought, oh man, is God good. He introduces something small. The message, the kingdom is here. And it's so small that it's insignificant. You could step over it. But those of us that have taken root in our heart and you cultivate it and you don't let the weeds choke it out and you make sure it has good soil and you water it and you refresh it, it will take over your whole life. It will even stretch into the lives of everybody around you. This is the message of the kingdom. I preach about a centrifugal Christianity, something that starts in you and spins outward. I preach about a Christianity that is deed-based and not creed-based because the kingdom is supposed to be expanding, growing in you. There is a king's dominion and every man is hearing the message, will you live in it or not? Too long we've heard Christian fairy tales. Just believe on Jesus. Believe that He died and resurrected. Say the right words, get wet at church, and you'll go to heaven. It's ridiculous. That is not the message of the kingdom. That is a tiny part of your admittance into the kingdom. That's like telling somebody, be born and you'll live. You know? Is, is that all you would need to know? As soon as the baby's head crowns, ah, that's it. That's his instructions for life. That's silly. It's silliness. And it's why we have so, that's why we have such a decadent, lazy church that does not understand the king's dominion, doesn't understand the, ne- the necessity of obedience, that faith in you produces obedience. Romans 1.5 says that. I said, I'm called not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, to call them to the obedience that comes from faith. Faith in you produces obedience. Why? Faith is trust. You are trusting that the king's dominion is real, even though you don't see it enforced in every situation. You are trusting that it is true. And that trust produces in you an obedience. When somebody says, oh, events like this, they sometimes shake my faith. It sounds so easy and so religious to say sometimes our faith is shaken, right? Because nobody seems to know what faith is. It's some kind of intellectual acceptance that you have the answers. That is not faith. Faith is trust in the king's dominion. And you know what? I cannot understand why something happened and still trust in the king's dominion. Come on, saints, this is real Christianity. When you see Jessica and Cheney, and you say, why are you lifting them up like this? Because they suffer greatly and yet they prevail. And that is Christianity. Christianity is not the unblessed Gospel. Christianity is not, I'm rich, I've got everything that the world has. That is not Christianity. Christianity is, I am pressed, but I will not be crushed. That is Christianity. Christianity becomes real under heavy oppression. This is why the church spreads in the book of Acts. The harder the devil hit it, the harder the hammer swung and hit the anvil, the more the church spread because that is real Christianity. What the devil was never able to accomplish through affliction, he's accomplished through affluence. God did not call us to live easy lives. He called us to endure the impossible so that people would go, David is living supernaturally, something beyond our normal ability. We've been taught to think supernatural is just miracles. It's getting the girl out of the casket. And that is awesome. And I look forward to those things. have seen some of it in my life, not nearly enough. But we forget that supernatural is staring in the face of death going, where is your sting? You have no victory over me. Say, how could you expect somebody to do that? because they trust the king's dominion is real. And I watched two people do it this weekend. Two people whose theology is not perfect. Two people whose lives are not perfect. These are not paragons of virtue that are suddenly going to be raptured away into heaven because they're unique. They're real human beings that hurt just like you do. That have financial struggles just like you do. That struggle with things in this world just like you do. And yet, it's real in them. It's time, saints, to stand up and be counted. We need a faith that cuts the mustard. By the way, mustard was mustard seed. Y'all got that? Charlotte got it. Alright, we'll, we'll keep going with that. Go to Daniel 2. I want to show you something about these kingdoms. Oh, well, good or not, it's true, you know. Sometimes the Word has bitter herbs in it. And sometimes it's sweet like honey. I don't know which will be what for you today. But I do know that it's good. That air conditioner plays havoc with me finding books of the Bible. (laughs) But I don't want to lose it. (laughs) You remember that Easter service we had in here? I don't know. We had 40 people and we were sweltering to death. I look forward to the day when we look back on 40 people and laugh thinking that was a crowd. (laughs) How about that? Okay, in Daniel 2, starting in verse 24. This ought to be a familiar story to most of you. If you don't read your Bibles, if you're kids, I'm sure you've watched Veggie Tales. Veggie Tales teaches this. In Daniel 2.24, what we see is Daniel not only interpreting a, tr- a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar, but also telling him what the dream was. Would you say that's supernatural? I would too. Let's start in 2.24. Then Daniel... Then Daniel went to Ariok, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king and I will interpret the dream for him. I can't help but digress here for a moment. What has happened is the king has proclaimed, Hey, I need somebody to interpret this dream for me. And he has lots of psychic advisors. Dion Warwick is there.
1: <laughs> Sister
0: Eve's auto sales is there. Erica Strada is there. They're all there, Right? What would the Christian church today say about those people? Oh, burn them, man. Get rid of them. They're all trash. That was not Daniel's heart. Daniel protected their very lives. Isn't that interesting? There are times we're ready to call down fire on everybody who doesn't have it right. And then you look in the mirror and realize, oh, fire would be coming on me too. Maybe we should cry out for mercy for everybody. That ought to change Christians' heart. What do you hear about the church so often? It's full of... Judgment on everybody. All you ever hear is how bad you are, blah, blah, blah. This has sprung a whole new group of megachurches that preach about how great you are. Neither one are true. Neither one are true. You know what you are? Somebody wholly dependent upon the mercy of God. That makes you competent to minister the mercy of God to other people. Not as somebody who's perfect, who's never messed it up, but as somebody who's messed it up and yet found favor with God anyway. That is an awesome message to have. I wish more of the church had that. You know how they'll get it? You need to live it. Your faith needs to cut the mustard in every situation. It needs to do that. Then uh, Daniel says, don't execute him." Verse 25, Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. You know what I love about God? He'll take the exiles and do something awesome with them. He'll take the people that nobody else would take of whom I am one and do something awesome with them. That's why last week I read you about all the men that came to David's side who was a type of Christ. You remember who they were? The indebted, the discontented, the dregs of society. You know who they became? The mighty men who advanced David's kingdom on the earth and laid waste to all the enemies of God. See, there's a message in that, saints. He will take an exile and elevate him to king-like status. He will take the discontented and make them mighty men. We serve a God who will take your ashes in life, whatever your broken, burned-up dreams are, and do something beautiful with them. That's the message we preach. That's the message we live, not just preach. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, there's a bit of an insult for Daniel. Daniel... Your name is awesome, and it's Hebrew, and it glorifies God, but I'm going to change it to a foreign god's name. But anyway, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner, can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. One of the things that I love about Daniel is he is in a position here to allow himself to be elevated. To allow himself to be seen as someone great. And instead he takes the opportunity to glorify God as someone great. And so the result is he gets both. He goes down in history. Men like Ezekiel write in their books, Are you as wise as He goes down as Daniel, the the one who saw the kingdoms. You wait till you hear the message that Daniel gets here. Daniel gets a revelation that surpasses any in the old testament anywhere. Daniel understands on multiple occasions how many kingdoms will rule the earth, what their characteristics will be like, and how the kingdom of God will be set up on earth. I'm not even sure that John, who we sing about and call John the Revelator, understood that, except for his revelation was based on Daniel. What an awesome thing! But it starts with, hey, nobody can do what you ask, king, except God, and I'm His representative. Man, 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 man. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. I want you to get this, saints. He's hearing from God what the man dreamed. You know? You ever play that game with somebody? You won't believe what I dreamed last night. Come on, guess. Well, come on, man. I mean, what are you asking? They talk about a needle in a haystack. That's what the king did to him. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned toward things to come. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. I love to think about God as a revealer of mysteries. There are all kinds of things that are a mystery to me. There are things in this creation I just don't get. You know? Why is 60% of the earth's surface covered with water that is so deep we can't build anything that goes down to the bottom of it? You know? There are all kinds of mysteries here. Why is it that leukemia is allowed to take the life of a five-year-old little girl? But we serve a revealer of mysteries. And if you earnestly seek Him, love Him, and trust Him, He will teach you everything you need to know. Those of you that know me well know I have two fathers. Two men that I call Daddy and that I love very much. And one is watching by Internet and one is here in the church. And I was talking to Bobby, the one here in the church the other day, and he was telling me about watching a scientist. Who were we talking about? you remember? Was it Newton? Isaac Newton. Newton. And how in Isaac Newton's life, all of the things that he invented, this was a man who apparently loved God, and the mysteries of his time were revealed to him. You know, Isaac Newton is credited for... Most well known for figuring out the formula of gravity and how fast it accelerates everything and acts as a constant and all of those neat things. But what Bobby was telling me many people don't know about him is that he diligently searched the Word. He studied the Word regularly. We live in a day where we're taught that science and religion are mutually exclusive. This was never the case until this last century and a half or so. All of the great scientists in the world saw God as the revealer of mysteries and God Himself taught them mathematics and put in the hearts of men things that caused them to yearn for truth and He revealed it. you ever wondered what made one man get in a boat and sail off what he thought might be the edge of an earth while all the others stood on the shore? God had to put that in His heart. God does those things. you ever wondered why it's two different Jews that ended our two world wars? Alfred Nobel invents TNT, ends World War I. Alfred Einstein invents the nuclear physics that create the atom bomb and ends World War II. God put it in their hearts. You say, but they, one of those men was a philanderer. He was not a good man. God can use people that aren't good. Might be proof of that in this room. But we hold out the hope that God is making us better than we were yesterday. Amen. Not a sinner. I am a saint now. But that sainthood is credited to me. It was not earned. The revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. Verse 30, As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. One of the things that's wonderful about God, I mean just awesome, is He'll take a lowly exile and reveal His deep mysteries. You remember Jesus prayed, I thank you, Father, for revealing this to the lowly and hiding it from the wise. God's always been in this business. That's not a New Testament thing. That's His testimony. He reveals things to those who humbly seek Him. And what is our job? Then to go and display it in our lives. It wouldn't have been enough if David just, or Daniel just knew this. That wouldn't be enough. He had to proclaim it. And you know what? In this very action, what did the king say he was going to do to all of the wise men? Kill them. So if the king's not impressed with what Daniel says, He's going to get killed. And he had to guess what the dream was. Is that real faith? Real trust in God's dominion? Well, yeah. It's a lot better than the positive thinking people teach his faith today. Yeah, just name it and claim it. Say it enough and it'll happen. What a ridiculous fairy tale. No regard for what is God's will. No regard for the fact that He may not want you blessed financially on every side. He may want you in a vice to see what is in your heart to see how you do. I was told I was under a curse of poverty one time. Friends, I can tell you, Eric's done a lot of things that may have deserved a curse, but there's never been a curse that's come upon Eric because I'm in Christ. I'm clothed in Him. It cannot land on me, the Word says. You know what? When I say that, I just smiled and moved right on. Of course, it was a millionaire who said it. From his advantage, his vantage point, I may have looked cursed, and yet I was blessed. As for me, the poverty, the mystery has been revealed to me. Poverty? No, I'm kidding. Not, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O oh King, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Why does God reveal things to His saints? For the benefit of others. Why did God bless Abraham? To be a blessing to others. Why would God bless you? To bless someone else. You need to think about that next time you bottle up what God's given you and hide his light under a lampshade. You need to think about that the next time you have an opportunity. You know, I could say this, but God didn't give it to you for you. He didn't give you anything that you had for you. Your life is supposed to selflessly serve others. That's a faith that cuts the mustard. It's these people's funeral for their little girl. You know what they did? gifts to almost everybody there. What a powerful testimony. Wouldn't you think this would be the time they would be receiving gifts? Receiving kind sentiments? Being comforted? And what did they do? They took the comfort that they received from God and God alone and comforted other people. That is a faith that cuts the mustard. Saints, what we hear is Christianity I believe in Jesus and I'm an American and in certain circles I'm a conservative Republican. You know, whatever it is that you think makes you a Christian could be a great big fat giant fairy tale lie. You know what makes you a Christian? What you do. You go back and read about the separation of the sheep and the goats. It was based on what they did or did not do. Oh, Eric's preaching a gospel of works. I'm preaching a gospel of works that are prompted by true, sincere trust, faith, and obedience. And if you don't like it, you need to change your doctrine or change your church. Because there is only one true message. And the other thing is greasy, sloppy grace that does not work and becomes a license for immorality. The Scripture rails against it. But the Scripture's not read and understood. They diligently search God for ways that they can build gymnasiums and feed donuts instead of the manna that comes from heaven. You looked, O King, and there before You stood a large statue, enormous and dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms silver, its belly and thighs bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, and the bronze, and the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept away without leaving a trace, swept them away without leaving a trace. What got swept away? The chaff. The chaff. Not the rock. We're going to read more about that. The chaff. John the Baptist came preaching about a man named Jesus. He said, the winnowing fork is in his hand. He will gather the wheat into his barn and the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. There's a parable of wheat and tares. The tares were taken out, snatched away, and burned with unquenchable fire. The wheat was taken into the barn. You will see that consistently. And yet, all we are ever told is the wheat is going to be taken out while the chaff is burned here on earth. That is not taught, not anywhere in the Scripture. The kingdom of God is being established. It comes on the heels of the kingdoms of men. Watch this. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the earth. We're talking about... Nick, throw me the pen. We're talking about a rock. Okay, what's a rock? It's a little bitty chip of something. What does it become? A huge mountain. And what did it do? Huge mountain, and it filled the earth. The kingdom of God here is being likened to a rock cut out of a mountain. Something small that is inserted into a situation. It caused the kingdoms of the earth to crumble. And as they crumble, the rock grows. And the rock grows to become a mountain that fills the earth. Friends, this is what the Bible calls the mountain of the Lord. The interpretation to this dream is given. I don't have time to read it all, so skip down to verse 44. Let me tell you what happens between there. What we hear is, oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, You are this head of gold. This head of gold is your kingdom, which has been given dominion over all of the earth. By the way, that's Babylon. What we hear is that the next kingdom is the Medo-Persian kingdom, one that's inferior to the first, but that comes after Babylon. What we hear after that is that a Greek kingdom will take over the world. By the way, all of these kingdoms happen and Daniel's prophesying way before it ever occurs. And after the Greek kingdom, there would be a Roman kingdom. It's kingdom that we're going to read about just a little bit. Verse 44, "...in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all of those kingdoms and will bring them to an end, but itself will endure forever." This is the meaning of the vision, the rock of the rock cut out of the mountains, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, bronze, the clay, and the silver, the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true. The interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. Nebuchadnezzar could see something cool really happen, but you can see he's still a little off base. Where should the offering have been presented? To God, not to the messenger. Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. This vision gets repeated in several different ways. In fact, in Daniel 7, flip to Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, we see these four kingdoms, the same four kingdoms as four beasts. The first time we see them as a statue. And each medal in the statue represents something about the kingdoms. One is divinely led. Nebuchadnezzar later in life. His last recorded words are God is able to abase the proud. He got the revelation. He got the revelation that the only authority He had came from the Father. The same revelation that Pilate didn't understand when Jesus stood before him. Nebuchadnezzar got it. The next kingdom that came was the Medo-Persian Empire. And they were inferior to the Babylonians in almost every way, but they were still used of God as a Gentile kingdom on the earth. They raised up a man named Cyrus who rebuilt the Jewish temple. Then after that comes... Alexander's kingdom, the Greek kingdom. They conquered most of the world, forced the world to speak Greek again, something that was seemingly a bad thing that God used because it paved the way for the Gospel to be translated into a language all over the world people could understand. Following the Greek empire came the Romans. This is what Daniel's statue had been, iron legs that went down into ten toes that were mixed with iron and clay. In other words... As this kingdom went on, it would be divided. As the division went on, it would be further divided and it would become weaker. And it would be upon that kingdom that the rock that is the kingdom of God would fall. I'm sorry. When the book of Luke starts out, it says that it was in the time of someone. Who was it? Was it an American? Was it an American kingdom that Jesus was born into? No, it wasn't. Oh, it was the Spaniards. No, it wasn't the Spaniards. It says, in the time of Augustus Caesar, a census was taken. Augustus is the nephew of Julius Caesar. His name means the August One, the revered One. His kingdom is the fourth kingdom that comes upon the earth. And it's in His day that the little chip falls out of a mountain. An obscure carpenter. Somebody of little account. Not the kind of man with beauty or majesty that someone would be drawn to Him. But that little chip is becoming a mountain that will fill the whole earth. Now saints, I'm not an amillennialist. Some of you know what that is and some don't. I'm not somebody who is preaching to you that things are getting better on the earth and the kingdom of God is going to envelop the earth because of our good efforts. I don't believe it. I'm going to show you in Daniel where God says to Daniel, hey, wickedness is going to increase at the same time. What we are seeing is the righteous are becoming more righteous, the wicked are becoming more wicked, and we have two kingdoms on the earth clashing. And there will be a climactic end when the king of the real kingdom appears. And all the kingdoms of the world crumble before him. Right now it is a pebble, it is a rock, but it is growing into a huge mountain and a force to be reckoned with. There are kingdoms that are clashing. In Matthew 24, Asked Jesus, "What will be the sign of this, of your coming and of the end of age?" One of the signs was nation will clash against nation. That's ethnic groups, nations. That's the word there is races of people. All right, but they were organized into the, nations. Then he said, "And kingdom will clash against kingdom." People think, "Oh, that's just nice poetic speech." It's not. He's talking about nations of men at war with one another and the two kingdoms, the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of God violently clashing. And it is happening all around us. Have you ever looked and said, why did God let that happen? Friends, it might not have been God. There are two kingdoms that are at war with one another on this earth. But God can do anything. He can do anything you'll let Him do through you. He can do anything. He's just chosen to use you as His hands and feet on earth? Or did you think it was just imagery when we said we were the body of Christ? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus had been in His Father's presence for some time when that was said. Why was it said that Saul was persecuting Him? Because the church is the body of Christ. Next time you wonder, why does God let there be poor people in India? Why are those children starving? Well, why haven't you done something about it? You're God's representative. Next time you see somebody and say, Why did God let that happen? Why did you let it happen? You call yourself Christian. You know what Christian means? Like Christ. Christ Christ's representative, his ambassador. Isn't it amazing that people that stand back and philosophically look at all the world and blame God for its problems do nothing to fix those problems? We are supposed to be living in the king's dominion now. Or Yom and Daniel seven. In Daniel 7, starting in verse 23, we pick up with that same fourth kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is the fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns. Remember in Daniel's first vision, we had ten toes? Well, now we have ten horns. Repeating imagery. Trying to get across a message to us. Four kingdoms. The fourth kingdom is divided. In its division, there become ten things. The ten are weaker than the original iron that they were made of. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from the kingdom. And after them, another king will arise different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress His saints. Most of the church doesn't even believe there will be saints here. They will all have flown away and try to change the set times and laws. The saints will be handed over to Him for a time's time and a half time. Oh, that's got to be somebody else because American Christians would never put up with this. We would not be Christians anymore if we were allowed to suffer. This is why Matthew 24 says, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm till the end will be saved. Well, we take out the black highlighters to those and emphasize... Two verses that build a theological house of cards waiting to fall on its teachers. The only reason that it's been accepted in mass is because the masses that yearned for the Bible in their own language, that fought a Roman institution for the right to read the Word, now no longer read the Word. They don't understand it. They would rather read books sold at Walmart made up by psychologists that do not teach the truth. Oh, well, those are good people. Yes, they're good people. Good people get deceived too. It's a warning for us. Oh well, we didn't come to teach on eschatology today. He will speak against the Most High and will oppress His saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to Him for a time's time and a half time. But the court will sit and His power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. This consistent message is there are four Gentile kingdoms who will rule the earth. In the fourth kingdom, a chip out of a mountain will come and it will start to become a mountain on the earth and fill the whole earth. It will crush the kingdoms of the world. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints. You've been told that we'll go somewhere else and inherit a place called heaven. That is not what the Bible teaches. I showed you all of those scriptures last week. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The meek will inherit the earth. Job said, and this was quoted wrong the other day too, Job said, I will stand upon the earth and the eyes of my own flesh will see my Redeemer. Everybody talks about going away to heaven. That only happens if you're in a generation that does not see heaven come here. The kingdom of God is near you. It's on you. It's enveloping you and it will envelop the entire earth and all will be in all. Corinthians fifteen twenty eight teaches that Jesus will bring everything in subjection to His Father. In heaven and on earth, the Father's kingdom will perfectly extend over the whole thing with no rebellion. Kingdom of heaven you need to learn to translate as the King who is in heaven's dominion on the earth. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. I love how everybody wants to make this only Israel. We want their blessings, but we want none of their struggles. You search your heart. You read this scripture without a doctorate in theology or a commentary telling you what it means, and you tell me that the saints, the people of the Most High, who suffer under this oppressive king are only Israel. And see if that sets right with your spirit. I don't believe it will. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey Him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply distressed. Daniel was upset about this. You know why? Because he understood that it meant for God's people it was going to get tough. Turn to Daniel 12. I promise we will get to the New Testament. Have you noticed that people that quote an end times picture that has nothing to do with the kingdom of God on earth has everything to do with a tail tucked between your legs running away? Never, never start in the Older Testament. Why do you think that is? Why do we only know how to quote 1 Thessalonians 4.17? Why do you think that is? Because there are Greek heresies that have entered the church that the Jews never would have accepted. They had a foundation in the 39 books of the Old Testament that taught them about what to expect from God so that when this rock that was cut out of a mountain appeared, some of them could grab hold of the message and understand. That's why their questions are what they are and ask, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it now? Is it now? Is it now? They knew what they were waiting for. Today, we want to be propped up by a jukebox when we die. We want to fish by heaven's fishing hole. How retarded. (laughs) It is. It's absolutely moronic. And you say, well, Eric, that is so mean, that is so harsh. It's because it is something other than the good news of Jesus that was preached. And we've accepted it. You know why we've accepted it? Because the generation before us did. You know why they accepted it? Because the generation before them did. All the way back to... Most of this happened between 1650 and 1850. And now we don't even study or search anymore. We walk into a church and say, tell me what I need to believe. Give me the 14 points of doctrine. Our pastors go to seminary and they're not taught to challenge the authority. They're not taught to dig into the Word and test every doctrine. You know what they're taught to do? Accept it or you can't be one of our number. We'll cut off your resources. When I was a young pastor and God was calling me to this, a man tried to hire me. He said, you need to stay Baptist. It's where all of the resources are. Well, to tell you the truth, that was tempting for me at the time because I didn't know better. I can clearly see I, that was an attempt to get me to sell out. That's not because Baptists are bad. My favorite people in this world are Baptists that's because men have a way of tainting what is pure from God. And you know what? It'll happen to me too if I'm not careful. Every day we need to examine ourselves. There is a kingdom and we have to live in its dominion. It's being set up on earth. Look at this. Daniel 12. I wanted to read you all of this, but I can't. So let's start in uh, 9. Uh, it talks about a time of great distress, unequalled from the beginning of the world till then, and a resurrection occurring. But in Daniel 12.9, an angel is speaking and he, he replies, Go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. By the way, that's where we get the word eschatology. The first part of that means end, and the last part means study of eschatology. That's what Daniel was talking about here. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand." He goes on to tell him how to predict what will happen. I want you to get this. From this rock, right? Not the wrestler guy who had liposuction on his chest. We're not talking about him. (laughs) God's going to introduce something at a strategic point in history. We're going to say right here, okay? Somewhere between 5 or 6 B.C. and 4 A.D. God is going to introduce something that Daniel called a rock. Later, it's called uh, the kingdom of God. Something would be introduced. It would begin to cause a change so that the righteous would get more righteous and the wicked would get more wicked. We're not preaching a progressive nature of a kingdom on the earth where all of us get so good that eventually all the nations accept Jesus and we're in a millennial reign. That is not what Daniel taught. Daniel thought something would be introduced right here that would be a dividing line in history that would cause the righteous to grow in their righteousness and the wicked to grow in their wickedness. And Daniel was distressed about this. With that in mind, turn with me to Matthew 13. When we study these kingdom parables in Matthew, you need to understand that it is with a foundation. It is with an understanding that came to the Jewish nation about what to expect. And what were they supposed to expect? Four kingdoms followed by the kingdom of God. They could count, friends. Whatever you think about the Jewish people, they can certainly count. And they counted the Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, the Greek kingdom. And when they looked at the Roman kingdom, they saw the one kingdom that God would crush. The misunderstanding is that the crushing wouldn't happen in a single day. The misunderstanding is that the Lion of Judah would first appear as a Lamb. The misunderstanding is that the great warrior king like David would first appear instead of Isaiah's suffering servant. At first, he is a rock, a small pebble. But upon this rock, the church gets built. Upon this revelation, a mountain starts to fill the earth. And the righteous get more righteous. The wicked get more wicked until a climactic day at the end when a boastful little horn is what Daniel calls him. Second Thessalonians 2 calls him the man of lawlessness will oppose everything that is God's and the court will be set the king will return he will destroy him with fire from his mouth by the way if you ever have wondered how all this turns out read Matthew 24 and then turn to Second Thessalonians 2 he'll say guys I don't want you to be deceived in any way don't be ignorant don't be ignorant This day won't come until the man of lawlessness is revealed. All you ever hear, all you ever hear, is that we are gone before the man of lawlessness is revealed. It's amazing what we'll put up with. Doctrine that's 140 years old that has no foundation in Scripture, and we all suck it up like water because we like what it says. Paul told Timothy, You watch out, they'll raise up teachers for themselves who will tickle their itching ears. Do you know where the gospel of this glorious escape will not catch on? In the Sudan, where they crucify Christians. You know where it will not catch on? In Saudi Arabia, where they will behead you. You know where it will not catch on? In China, where you have to in an underground church. You go tell them that God wants you to drive a Cadillac, be rich, and fly away. What happens when they're not driving Cadillacs, being rich, and flying away? They think that the message is not true. We say, oh, well, the Gospel's been preached everywhere in the world but the 1040 window. My question is, what Gospel? The Gospel of the Kingdom? No, you meet a handful. And in the masses, there is always a handful that understand. You go find me a church of 10,000, there will be people in it that understand. Whether they can put it in words or walk you through the Scriptures, beside the point, the dominion of God on the earth in their lives is real. They may not even know what to expect, but they know how to act. And that's more important. I'm not teaching you something that should puff you up with knowledge. I'm teaching you something that caused you to love forcefully, with big love, way up to the sky. That's what I want, like that little girl. There's no question in my mind she's in the king's dominion now. You know how I know that? Her life showed she was in the king's dominion then. I heard a teacher say you're preparing yourself now. If you extend the kingdom of hell to people by living in it yourself. Constant turmoil, constant fighting, constant backbiting. When you fall asleep, you'll simply extend what you already know. If you live in the kingdom of God, peace, love, righteousness, joy, and the Holy Ghost, all of those things now, when you fall asleep, you'll simply extend what you were then. We're preparing ourselves. The king is coming back for his people. How do you know your people if you're a king? They're the ones that followed your rule. How would you know that? By what was in their heart? What is in your heart is evidenced by what you do every day. Do not be deceived. It is not the hearers of the Word who are justified. It is the doers of the Word. Why are you beating on me? Because I want to make it. I want to make it and I want to make it in glorious fashion. I want to be able to look the king in the eye and say, I believed in your kingdom even when it couldn't be seen. I acted as if it was real even when my heart told me it wasn't. That's what I want. That's trust. That's love. How could a king know if you really love him? If he shows up with all of his pomp and pageantry, with jewels and robes and crowns, you might love the crown and the robe and the jewels. But if he shows up as a humble man disguised as a regular human being and you love him then, you'll certainly love him in all of his power. That's what's going on, saints. It's time to get it right and be real. In Matthew... There's a parable that I do not have time to read. But you've read it. It's the parable of the sower. What happens in the parable of the sower? How many kinds of soils do we have? We have four, right? In the first kind of soil, seed is thrown out. What is seed? It's a very small thing, kind of like a rock, that grows into something much bigger. A rock that is growing into a mountain in the story before. Now we have a seed that is supposed to grow into a plant and bear fruit. But in the first kind of soil it falls on, it's hard. The Word is not received. It doesn't penetrate the heart. The people don't understand it. And the birds snatch it away. The the power of the air snatches it away. In the second kind of soil, we have a a soil that is there and it looks good enough, but there's rocks there. There's no depth for the seed to really grow in. I mean, it gets planted and it starts. I know some of us have been taught that you can't start in Christianity and not remain saved. Well, all you've got to do is read this one parable. It'll fix it for you. Another fallacy not taught in the Word This become a license for immorality. Hey, you got baptized. You got saved. You had a warm, fuzzy experience. Now go out and live like hell all the way to heaven. Oh, well, you can build big churches like that. They're not real churches, but you can build them. Be careful what kind of lure you use to catch fish. Use trash. You will catch trash. Jesus never begged anybody to follow Him. He simply taught the truth and people followed. I'd rather preach in a garage to a handful than water it down, teach something that in my heart I know the Scripture does not support because it's pleasing to people. You say, nobody would ever do that. My preacher wouldn't do that. The church, I... Friends, then who is doing it? It's kind of like the parents of private schools. Now, my parents are listening here. They're, they, they can, they're probably jumping through the camera right now. The problem is that... Little Johnny is just in with the bad crowd. Nobody has ever considered that Johnny is the bad crowd. Parents are just incapable of doing that. Well, unfortunately, Christians are incapable of thinking that their churches are the very ones that are watering it down. And yet, somebody is, because the Bible teaches the love of most will grow cold. Every one of these parables was taught to a people that believed they were saved. Every one of them. And yet, we always think it's talking about the church down the road. Well, let's just clear it up, saints. It's talking about you. It's talking about me. This book is a mirror that should give you insight into the imperfections of your life so that you can correct them. Ladies, you ought to understand this. Y'all get great big magnifying mirrors with lights around it and sit here and pick at every little... My wife doesn't even have a blemish, but you know what I mean. That's what the Word is. It gives you a chance for self-reflection. And when you read it, and you just shine it in other people's eyes. This is what it says about you, Steve. <laughs> oh, You feel good well enough until that day where you meet the king. Hmm. Okay, so the first parable's got the guy with the seed on the path. The birds come steal it. He never even, salvation's not even birthed. The kingdom is not born in him. The second guy, the kingdom's born in him, but he doesn't do what it takes for a soil to get right. And so it fades out. The third guy, the kingdom's born, it grows, and it's at an age where it should start producing fruit, but the cares and worries of this world begin to choke it out. You know what this is? I know who Jesus is. I'm excited. I've got His Word in me. It's growing. How am I going to pay my mortgage? If I do that at work, I'll get My wife might leave me if I do that. And the cares and worries begin to cause you to get pushed right out of the King's dominion here on earth into the other citizenship that you're a part of, which is Adam's race. The old stinking flesh that is always telling us to do something we shouldn't do. You get a choice every day which dominion you'll live in. The fourth one, the seed fell on good soil. Soil doesn't get good, by the way, by itself. Adam was put in the garden to do what? Work it. Saints, you got the same job Adam did, first and foremost, working the soil of your heart. So the soil of your heart has got to get right. And then what happened in the parable of the sower? The tiny little seed, like the tiny little rock, grew and grew and produced a plant that produced fruit. Thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. The next parable that you read here is a parable of wheat and weeds. And what happens is, a king goes out and he sows into his field this beautiful seed. Again, something small. And when he comes back overnight, an enemy has sown something else in the field. And the people are perplexed and what should we do? Let's go out and tear up those bad things. He said, now let them mature side by side. Let them form their heads of grain. Because the wheat bows naturally. As the grain gets full, it starts to bow. And you can tell the difference between a weed and wheat because one will not bow its will, and the other will. By the way, you know who got torn out? The weed, not the wheat. The wheat gets gathered into the barn here on earth. The weeds get torn out and burned with unquenchable fire. Again, something small that produced a large harvest. The next parable that you get to here is in verse 44. We're going to read these last two and we're going to finish. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. I'm sorry, it's not where I wanted to be. Matthew 13, 31. He told them another parable. 13.31 The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all of your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. Luke says that they can benefit from its shade and it's the largest of the garden plants. And you know what our scholars have spent their time debating? Ignoring what the passage means, our scholars have spent their time debating which mustard is he talking about? Is he talking about the small plant that grows like a flower that has a fairly large seed? And you grind into uh, mustard and eat it in your French's bottle? Or is he talking about some other kind of mustard tree? Because there's two that grow in Israel. And one writes a long dissertation about why he's talking about mustard you eat. And the other writes a long dissertation about why he's talking about a non-edible mustard that grows into a little bit larger plant. And that's what they've decided to argue about. Oh, don't you feel edified with that? You, know, you don't think that's what Jesus was talking about? Jesus is trying to convey one continuous message. I'm preaching to you something that is small at first it seems like a minor change. It's not overwhelming. It's not tremendous. It's not something that is Donald Trump in scale. It is something small, almost unnoticeable. But if you cultivate it in your heart, it will grow. It will pervade you. It will change you. It will extend to the people that are around you. Other people will benefit from the shade that it creates in your life. And in fact, it will fill the whole earth. The message of the kingdom is what looks small and insignificant. For those that can grab hold of it, it will change you forever. It will change the earth forever. As if they didn't understand, in case they missed it, in case they didn't get the connection, there are four kingdoms that are coming. The next one, the kingdom of God, is going to start small in an insignificant way and then grow and pervade. In case they missed that, He told them another parable. I like the way that Matthew wrote it. It's, Luke, it's Matthew 1333, he told them still another parable. Like, he just kept going and going and going, a lot like Eric. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. A small amount yeast mixed into three parts flour. I know it doesn't say that in your Bible. If you look at your footnote, it does like a tiny rock, like a tiny seed, a mustard seed, whatever it is that grew into something larger. The kingdom of God on earth starts small. It starts in your heart, but it grows into every area of your life if you cultivate it, if you let it. And the King is coming back for those who are already in His kingdom on earth. And He will make us rule the nations for a thousand years, the Bible says. He will set up His dominion on the earth and put down every enemy that has ever exalted itself against God. That is our hope. Our hope is that we will live in the reality of heaven while on the earth. If you haven't been taught that, I'm sorry. We're trying to change that. If you've only ever heard this in some weird perversion like the Jehovah's Witness teach, I'm sorry. The devil's a master at taking a little bit of truth and making it into a lie. He does it all of the time. Study the Word though. They all preach the message of the kingdom. Now, what's your responsibility to this? Because I have to close. Second Timothy tell, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 8-14, Man, you've been given a, departed, a deposit. Guard it. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. You guard it. That's the seed. That's the knowledge of the kingdom that's within you. You guard it. You do whatever it takes to fight off anything that wars against it. Friends, mostly that's your own thoughts. You know, the battles we lose are not the ones that are obvious and physical and right in front of us. The battles that occur between our heart and our head. In 2 Corinthians 1.22, we were told that we were given a spirit as a deposit. In 2 Corinthians 5.5, 5, we were told that that spirit that is a deposit guarantees you a resurrected body, a permanent establishment on earth in the kingdom of God, free from the chains of death. Ephesians 1.14 says that this Spirit in you is a deposit put there to guarantee what is to come. Hebrews teaches us that we don't see everything subject to Jesus yet. We don't see the kingdom of God on earth, yet we see it's real in Jesus. In other words, we can't see the tree yet. We can't see the fruit at the end yet, but what we can see is the mustard seed. We can see the rock. We can see the leaven. We can see all of these other things that have dramatic impacts. That's what we see in the kingdom. Your job is to love big, to shine forcefully, to do this in such a way that what people see about your life is the kingdom. Not to talk to them about a hope that is in some other place in a galaxy far, far away. To talk to them about their hope here and now. Not about their loved ones that they will go to join one day. About the loved ones that will return to join us one day. There will be a generation that will see the coming of the Lord and the establishment of his kingdom on earth with Israel as chief among nations and the law going out from Zion. Well, you never hear that in church. It's because they don't read the thirty nine books of the older testament. They made a mistake when they called it old. It meant obsolete, no longer any reason to read it. Friends, there is no old in New Testament. There's not. There's one revelation of God. It just happens to come to us with a four hundred year division between the two major chapters. Corinthians 3, verse 5 says, What is Apollos? And what is Paul? One plants, the other waters. God makes it grow. Something's been planted in you. I am watering it. Your dependence on God is the only thing that will make the kingdom grow in your life. I hammer you week after week after week. You might even say that I am beating on a piece of metal trying to shape you into something that you're called for. There are times that's painful, and I know that. I don't expect you all to love me every week. I just expect you to love me. What I'm hoping happens is that God will make this thing grow in you so that you are fit to cause His kingdom to advance on the earth. This is the only way that I know because this is what is real to me, and it's what I see in the Word. Matthew 25 teaches about a parable that a man goes out and he puts things on deposit with his friends. Actually, his subjects. One thinks he does a good thing by simply burying it. All of the others did something to increase it. The one who simply buried it, what he had was taken from him. And you know what the Bible says? He was thrown outside of the kingdom. You have been given something, even today, that you must increase with, that you must grow with, Peter said it this way in 2 Peter 1.3. He said, look, I know you guys already know all this, but if you possess these things in increasing measure, then you'll get saved. I mean, he says it like that. That it needs to be in increasing measure so that you won't be unproductive and futile. That's what he said. What I'm trying to do is encourage a faith that so pervades our life that we walk in the King's dominion in every area, in our television, in our radio, in our relationships, everywhere we are, because that's what's real that is extending the kingdom of heaven to the people around you and we need to close. So stand up and let's press. In business, we're taught to measure what they call ROI. Anybody know what ROI is? Return on investment. Yeah, the business major back there got that. I don't want to make God sound like a businessman, but He absolutely does measure His ROI. The reason that the seeds in the soils were planted was to get crops 30, 60, and 100 fold. The reason the talents were put on deposit with people was to get an increase. At the end of the age when there's a separation among God's people, among all those that look like sheep and some are found to be goats, the difference is the ones He got the return on investment for. You not only need to guard what you've been entrusted with, you need to grow it. Because the truth is, if God invested in you five measures of whatever and you don't do anything with it, then He wasted it. Because if He gives me those five measures, I will push forward with them. If He gives them to many of you, God, you'll push forward with them. That's not singing our praises. That means I understand what this kingdom's about. Don't let Him waste His investment in you. Use every area of your life for His glory. Y'all say Amen? Let's pray.